0: Let's figure out what's going on with my tablet here. Let's go ahead and let's pray, and then uh, we'll spend some time in the Word. So let's go ahead and let's pray. Dear Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your love, for your mercy, and for your grace that you've lavished upon us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given us so much in Him. We thank you for the Word. We thank you that you have kept it and preserved it for us, that we can read it, we can know your will, we can know your plan that it gives us wisdom, that it teaches us about Christ and about each other. We are so very thankful for that. We're thankful for the ministries that we heard about this morning, both Hope and Mercy Mission training pastors and also Gideon's passing out your word uh, to those who, who need it. We just ask, Father, that as we open up that word and as we talk about that Savior this morning, that your spirit would be working in our hearts, causing us to see our sin and helping us, encouraging us, empowering us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen. All right, so I remember uh, my first day of sixth grade. Uh, does anybody else remember my first day of sixth grade? I, uh, it was the first time that in my life that I had a schedule and I had to be at a certain place at a certain time. Uh, so I had math and then I had another class and then I had another class and had another class and you were dismissed from that class you left that class and you had to walk to another class it was the first time and I, I remember I don't remember a lot from anything let alone when I was in sixth grade but I remember that feeling of wow this is a lot of stuff coming at me at once all sorts of different stuff right not one theme throughout the day. I'm going to the English teacher, I'm going to the math teacher, I have a Latin class. There's all these classes I'm going to. Each teacher is just teaching that subject, that specifically. And I just remember just thinking, wow, there's a lot of stuff going on on the first day, a lot of things being said. All of it is important, and I'm supposed to remember it, even though there's not necessarily one unifying theme. Last week, we started Proverbs 22 in this section of these 30 sayings. So if you remember in the first 10 chapters, the image was Solomon as a father walking his children through the marketplace of ideas, telling his children, go this way, go this way, go that way. And the posture that we as the, re- as the reader were supposed to take was one of a child listening to one's father. That's how we would come to the book. I don't know anything. You need to teach me. The second part of the book was kind of interesting because it had this compare and contrast, right? And We went through that from chapter 11 to uh, the mid-chapter of 22. And it was dealing with the righteous person does this and the wicked person does this. Still with that concept that we're children learning from our fathers, This new section in Proverbs 22, starting in verse 17, going uh, some chapters, has 30 sayings from different people. And remember, the posture is coming in as a pupil, like we're coming into school. So this is like first day classes type of thing. Remember, last week was the syllabus, right, as we dealt with verses 17 through 21. What is the syllabus of this Wisdom University, this Wisdom School. Today we're going to go over our first lessons. We're going to go over five lessons, five sayings. The first five sayings. Uh, there is some interesting overlap between them, but it, it kind of like the Book of Proverbs so far. Uh, it's very loose, and so this reminds me of my first day of middle school. of Oh, i got to remember math stuff and English stuff and Latin stuff? Come on. That's too much stuff, stuff in my head. That's the sense that we're going to get, is here are the first lessons going to different teachers, different teachers teaching us different things. The first five sayings that we're going to go over, the first one's found in verses 22 through 23 of Proverbs chapter 22. The first saying deals with, Don't be a thief. And don't rob the poor. Then the next one found in verses 24 to 25 is be careful when you pick your friends. Be very careful who you associate with. Then the next one found in verses 26 through 27. You have this idea of don't make reckless decisions. Don't make reckless decisions. Verse 26 Don't intentionally hurt families. Don't hurt families. Don't rob from families. Then lastly in verse 29, we're going to see you should work hard and skillfully. Right? These are our first lessons. So let's go to the first lesson. Right? You should not rob the poor. Verse 22 of Proverbs 22. Notice what he says. Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their case and rob of life those who rob them. So notice here first, this first, do not rob the poor. The word for rob means to steal, to take from, don't rob the poor. And one of the reasons is why, why shouldn't you try to gain these, th- this from the poor? Number one, it's against the law, right? God says, don't steal. So obviously this starts off not with just a principle of being nice, of being a good citizen. This starts from the idea of the Ten Commandments, that Decalogue that God gave to the Israelites. Follow the law. Follow what God says, Right? Don't steal. Don't thieve. Don't be a thief. Some of the other reasons that the Bible gives and that we've already talked about in the book of Proverbs is this. Our fellow man is made in the image of God. And so therefore then when we rob from them, we're taking from someone who's made in the image of God. And if we take from them the stuff that is needed for them to live, that's a bad thing. Because we're not only just taking from them, but we're taking the things that God gave to them to provide for them so that they live. So just out of mere respect for fellow men who are made in the image of God. It's also wrong because we're supposed to be like God, loving one another, giving gifts. We're, we're, We're supposed to be helping people, not taking from them, not exploiting them. One of the other reasons is because God gave them that. The stuff that we have comes from God. The, the ability that we have to make money, to have resources, comes from God. He's the one that gives us the stuff that we have, and he gives us that as a stewardship. We are to take care of this stuff. And that's, he gives it to us as that. To take from someone is to deny that stewardship and to say, I get to determine who gets what. When? It's taking the place of God. It's taking the place of sovereign God. So don't rob the poor. There's lots of really good reasons not to rob the poor from the scriptures. But Solomon kind of gives why someone might want to rob the poor. Do not rob the poor because he is poor. There's a little bit of a thought here. The poor are an easy target. They're an easy target. they, They don't have the money to fight you in court. They don't have the sway that that you might have or the rich might have. So so it's the idea of looking at a poor person as an easy target because they're stuck. They're stuck. They're they're at a disadvantage. And I'm going to exploit that disadvantage for my selfish gain. That's the implication. So don't do this. And and then the next phrase is, is... Interesting or crush the afflicted literally crush the one who's downtrodden The implication is the person is already afflicted and then you're going to add more affliction on that how How bad of a person do you have to be To see someone that's afflicted and go i'm going to continue to extort that one You know it's only by the grace of god that we don't do this, right? It's only because of his work on our hearts, right? I think in the flesh, apart from Jesus Christ, every single one of us is capable of stealing. Every single one of us is capable of oppression and extortion. What kind of person does this? People like us do this. People like us extort and crush. But notice, there's a specific location. So it's Do not crush the afflicted. And then he says at the gate. What's so significant about at the gate? Why would that matter where you crush the afflicted? Just don't do it. Well, the gate was the center of town. In a sense, it was the center of business. Everything happened at the gate. That's where you would buy stuff. That's where you would take people to court. That's where there'd be city meetings. At the gate. The gate was the place of power, right? That's where you would meet people. And so the implication is... In business dealings, in court cases, in rulings against people, don't take advantage of afflicted people who can't fight back and don't have the means to fight back. That's the implication. It's this abuse of power, this abuse of the court, abuse of the system. Don't do this. Don't do this. It's bad. It's sinful. It's evil. It's not It should not even be named amongst us as Christians. Now Solomon gives this other reason of why you should be very careful. This is reason number one. And and if we were to zoom out a million miles from this text, we would say be obedient to God's word. Because God wants us to be obedient and he is the one who determines judgment, and punishment, right? That's that's an important thing to remember, that God is the judge. Now, we are so very thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ who came and died on the cross for our sins. And because of his death, burial, and resurrection, I now have no condemnation in Christ. I'm I'm not going to stand trial and be condemned. That that doesn't mean that he winks at my sin, that he says it's okay. It doesn't mean that there isn't going to be consequences of my sin. And, And it doesn't mean that when I get to heaven, he's just going to slap me on the back and go, Ah, that was okay. It was okay what you did. There, there will be a loss of reward. There, there will be some sort of discussion as a father would have with a child, right? So we've we got to be careful because, because notice that there's a consequence to this type of sin. And notice what that consequence is. For the Lord will plead their case. Yet you do this, guess what? Someone will take you to court, and that is the Lord. That's what it says: The Lord will take you to court. You take them to court? Guess what? He's going to take you to court. Now, you might be able to take me to court, outwit me. You could take me to court. I don't got a lot of money, so you're going to win. I'm not the smartest, I'm not the smartest uh, guy. I'm not the brightest bulb in the pack, as it were. Yeah, you could do that to me. Taking the Lord to court, that's not a good proposition. That's not a good proposition because not only will he be the opposing lawyer, because notice what it says. It says he will plead their case. He will bring their case up. He's going to be their lawyer. He's their defense lawyer. And he's going to give their argument. But then notice what it says next. And rob of life those who robbed them. Isn't that an interesting image? Uh, somebody robs from the poor. God then becomes the lawyer against them. And then will rob from them. Take from them. So God is not only in this scenario the one who brings you to court. He's the lawyer. He's going to be the judge. He is the jury. And he is the executioner. Good luck winning that case. But you understand, God takes this serious. He is the protector of these people. So, on the one hand, if you extort people, if you extort the poor and afflict the crushed, th- th- this should be an uh oh verse. If you are the one who's poor and being afflicted, this should be an encouragement verse. Someone's got my back, and it's the Lord. The Lord has my back. He is good, gracious, kind, loving what is good. He's holy. This demonstrates his attributes of grace and love. That he that he cares about the situation of people. And so one of the things that he does is he's also just and he will rob life from those who rob them. Meaning, whatever that means, that he's going to bring about some sort of loss of life in that person's Uh, That person's life Uh, Whether that's here on this side of glory Or on the other side of glory There will be something that will happen It, It just doesn't get swept under the rug This is lesson number one Right Don't rob Follow the law Be loving, kind, gracious to those who are afflicted Don't take from them Don't extort them Be like the Lord give gifts to people, right? That's the sense. Be loving. So that's lesson one. Let's go to statement number two, verse 24. Notice what he says. He says, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. Uh, kind of an interesting phrase here, just how they describes how how uh, Solomon and these wise men describe these people who are vindictive, wrathful, angry, flying off the handle. Right. No, notice the descriptions here. The first one is do not, uh, do not at, be a friend with the man given to anger. This literally is a, a, a red, f- red-nosed man. That's the idea here, red-nosed man. The, the idea is if you've ever seen anybody angry, blood rushes to their head, their nostrils start to flare, and it turns red. That's the that's the idea of somebody whose nostrils are flaring and they're heated up because of the heat because of the anger the intensity of the anger is right here you could see it on their nose so, so don't don't become a friend with this one don't don't become a friend with one who's given to anger who's mastered by anger who's willing to attack and attack and attack because he's selfish self-centered arrogant and if things don't go his way he's going to lash out with wrath against someone else. Don't go with this type of person. And he says, nor a wrathful man. The, the word here for, for wrathful man is literally a man of heat. A man of heat. That's, that's the translation here. Once again, I, I don't know how many of you ever been angry before. Maybe I might be the only one. But don't you get sweated when you get angry? Isn't there heat? Isn't there hot? There, there, there's like some sort of like this hot Energy that happens—that's the sense of somebody who's working themselves up for a fight, somebody who's willing to 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 deal out anger and wrath. So it's this idea of a—he's a hothead. My kids watched a TV show a couple uh, months ago, and all the different emotions had all these different character people, right? And one guy was anger; it was an emotion of anger. He was a lava man, and I thought that is the best description of this. He's hot all over and when he gets angry his he- his nose flares and lava shoots out of his head. That's the sense, okay? Very vivid of an angry man. And notice we're not supposed to be friends with them. Have close association with them. We're not supposed to go with them. The sense is to accept their lifestyle to 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 live life with them, to be the closest buddy of buddies with them, and and to bring them into your confidence. The sense is don't go to them for advice. Don't don't view them as friend number one. That's the the idea here of this association, this friendship. Why? Why, why Why shouldn't we be around angry people? Other than the obvious... You go around an angry person, you might be the object of that wrath, and that's not fun. There's something deeper. Something deeper, because remember, every single proverb must be interpreted with this idea of the fear of the Lord. So, so we got to remember that we shouldn't go with them because of the fear of the Lord. And, and So notice, what, notice the wise saying of why we shouldn't go with them. What's, what's the danger of associating being friends with, going with angry people? It says, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. You see, friends, when we go with these people, we observe them and we learn from them. It's like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, right? Bad company corrupts good morals. You hang around with a person like this. You don't add water to that fire. You become wood to that fire. You become consumed by it. You learn from him. And you you start emulating from him. This is a dangerous thing. You start asking him for advice. Guess what his advice is always going to be? One of anger, one of wrath, one of bitterness, of selfishness, and of arrogance. Not, not humility, not, not learning from God's word. Uh, an angry person never says, let's stop and pray about this before we act. An angry person says, now, let's go. Fire now, wrath now, bitterness now, anger now. It's the complete opposite of a person of wisdom. We learn from them. Just like healthy people Around sick people, don't automatically pass on their healthiness to sick people. Sick people pass on their sickness to healthy people. Angry people pass on their anger to others. Now, we'd say, Well, I don't want to be angry. I'm going to disagree with you. And I think Solomon disagrees with you. Because notice the next statement and entangle yourself in a snare, to get caught, to get caught in a snare. Now, I only know of a couple reasons of why a snare works. One, because you don't see it. It's something you don't necessarily see, right? And two, it's got bait. You're, you're, You're going to that place because there's something there that you want. Why should we not be around angry people? Well, we might learn their ways. Why? Because in the flesh... Every single one of us craves anger, bitterness, selfishness, all of that. The reason we learn from them, is because it's a temptation, is because it all draws from the same source, the same pool. Isn't it incredible that the Lord would save us in spite of this? And isn't it incredible that the Lord would give us the Holy Spirit to indwell And that as we yield to the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can then have victory over temptation like this. But you must realize this is a temptation for every single one of us. We all, somewhere inside of us, want to be selfish, want to be arrogant, don't want to be teachable, and we lash out. We learn that. There's a part of our flesh that wants that. That's lesson number two ready for lesson number three? Some people are going, nope, not really. Uh, the first two were great. Lesson number three. Be not one of those who give pledges, who puts up a security for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from you? Now, this is a principle we've talked about quite a bit in the book of Proverbs. Okay, we've seen this in chapter 6, we've seen this in chapter 11, we've seen this in chapter 17, we've seen this in chapter 20. Be careful, be careful when co-signing with somebody on a loan. Be careful for for saying to somebody, no, I vouch for him, he'll pay you back. Be careful. Be very careful. That, that, that has been the, the wisdom from the book of Proverbs. He's not saying don't do it. He's just saying, I think the, the principle would be, be very, very, very careful. In this situation, you have, you have this fool who is willing to put himself up as a pledge to say, I'll pay for this person's debt when he's got nothing. So if this guy doesn't pay, you got nothing to pay. And when the, when the tax man comes and he comes for you, you got nothing to give him. That's a special kind of foolishness, right? Yeah, no, I vouch for him. He'll pay his debts, and if he doesn't, I'll pay it. I got nothing to pay you with, but I'll still pay it. You have to wonder about a person that would do that. Either one, it's just pure stupidity. Pure stupidity. Or it's pure arrogance, pure trust in in the other person. Or this person is nefarious. They know they don't have anything to pay but I'm still going to do it because we're going to pull one over on that guy. Serious stuff. Serious stuff. As we've already stated, God gives us the ability to earn. He gives us the ability to make, to make a living for ourselves, to provide for our families. He provides for us, and he provides for us in numerous ways. We need to trust him and walk by faith that he will provide for us Walk by faith that, that he that he's got us, right? He's he's there to protect us. Sometimes we act not out of faith but out of fear. I have to do this. I have to have this. I have to get this loan. I have to have this. Because if I don't have it, then I won't have money and then I won't be able to take care of myself or my family. And I have to do that. Wisdom would say, no. You have to trust the Lord, and the Lord will provide. And even if he doesn't, you still have to trust him, right? That's principle number one. We are believers. It is in our name that we walk by faith. Righteous people walk by faith. We need to be careful with how we manage our money, because how we spend our money, how we manage our money, might talk about how we're trusting the Lord, or how we're trusting in ourselves to earn for ourselves. But the principle here is, be really careful when you cosign, because you might become enslaved, not to the Lord. You might not be a good steward because you now are responsible to pay someone else's debt, and you can't be a good steward of what God has given you. The stuff that he's given you now has to go to someone else. So, so, so don't, don't be enslaved and, and be able to owe any, to, uh, what, what Paul says, don't owe anyone anything except for love. The, the sense is that when you're enslaved to a debtor, you can't serve the Lord. You have to serve him first. The principle is pay him first so that you can serve the Lord, right? This is is bad. I I do think it's interesting, right, when he says here, do not, uh, for the one who gives pledges, this is a, the word means to strike hands, so it's the idea of a a handshake, and to put up yourself for the security of someone else's debts. And it says, especially if you have nothing to pay, and he says, why should your bed be taken from under you? This is a, a a statement we might not fully understand in our modern world why would they take your bed you would go well that's that's weird but if you understood the culture and you understood that you weren't allowed to take someone's bed that was their right to have a bed so if you were in that much debt that they get that they're coming to your bed that is the last thing you own it is literally they are taking everything They will take everything. We have a a saying, it could easily say here, taking the shirt right off your back. Right, That's the idea. You will lose everything. This is is bad. Bad, 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 bad. Don't do this. It's not walking in wisdom. It's not walking in the fear of the Lord. It's not walking in trust of him. This is a bad thing. Ready for saying number four? Notice the next one. Verse 28, do not move the ancient landmarks that your father have set. (laughs) Uh, Landmarks is an interesting translation that the ESV has here. It's not landmarks. Uh, This isn't saying don't take down statues that your dad put up. That's not what's being said here. This is about borders. So what they used to do... In the ancient world was uh, when you were given a piece of property, you would put these giant stone pillars on the four corners of your property. And that would be your property. Okay, that was it. In the ancient world, this was bad news bears to move someone's boundary line. But think about how easy that would be. You go out and you move a rock. How does somebody prove you moved it? How do you prove that? How do you prove where the original place, and then how do you prove that it was moved over here? It, It is almost like one of those crimes that is really hard to solve, and thus it would be for a fool or for a scoffer, this would be an easy crime to commit. But think about this. Imagine if you just kick it. You just kick it. It just moves a little bit. How much more land have you just got for yourself because now the property is skewed? Then you go over and you kick the other one. How much land did you earn? Oh, it might be just an inch or a centimeter, but you can consider that along the entire line. That's significant. That, that's incredibly significant. But there's something deeper here, friends. Something greater. Who gave Israel that land? It was the Lord. And if we remember our days back in Sunday school, not only did he give them the land, but he gave each family the specific place where they were supposed to reside. Not only that, not only was there just this general state where the tribes were supposed to reside, then Joshua divvied up the land for each family. In a sense, in Israel, God gave them that land. And God was concerned that they kept that land. So if you sold a portion of land... To someone else. On the year of Jubilee, guess what happens? That land goes back to the family. God was interested in this private property that he gave the Israelites. So to move this in Israel is once again placing oneself in the place of God. Saying, I don't care that God gave you this land. I don't care that Joshua gave you this land. I don't care. I'm going to take it. And what are you going to do? You can't prove it. Hmm. Man. The sense is, if you take someone's land, specifically if it's a family land, what are you doing? You're hurting the family. You think you're hurting just one person. No, you're hurting a lot of people. And a lot of people after that. And a lot of people after that, and a lot of people after that, and a lot of people after that. You're hurting a lot. This isn't just one small little act of just accidentally kicking a stone an inch and then just going, Ah, he won't care that it's an inch. This is nefarious. This is serious. This hurts people. This, this, this denies the sovereignty of God that God has the right to give. As Christians, we should never be involved in something like this. Of disrespecting someone's property or being involved in a scheme where we steal someone else's land. We should not be involved in that. That shouldn't even be named amongst us. Ready for saying five? First day of school, right? First day of middle school, right? Lots of different lessons. Got to keep them all straight, right? Here's the last one, verse 29. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. This is a positive one. We're going to end on a positive note. Isn't that great? The sense is, if you see a person of skill, and the word for skill here means that they're able to do it fast, that they're able to do their work correctly and diligently, and diligently. That's the idea of skilled, okay, quickly, correctly, and diligently, okay. So you see a person that does that in their work, guess what happens? That's a good thing. That's a good thing. You see a guy who, who, who knows what he's doing, is quick, and is diligent, and does it right the first time? That's the type of worker every employee wants, or every employer wants, right, right? As Christians, we are told to work to the Lord that way. Everything we do is for him and for his honor and for his glory. Everything that we say, think, and do is for him and ultimately for him. Even even when we're working on a job, right? From from pushing a broom to making decisions in, in, in a boardroom. All of that is for him. And we are to work hard and diligently. it, it, it is It is... It is what the Lord would want us to do. The Lord loves hard work, and He loves work, people that work hard for the right reasons. This isn't just some way of telling people to work better. This is the whole theology of work. God's given me the ability to provide. I'm going to work as hard as I can to provide for my family. I'm going to do what I'm going to do what's required of me, and I'm going to do it not for myself, but I'm going to do this for the Lord. I'm going to do this as a service to the Lord. And it's in that opportunity, it's then when we work hard and diligently that we then have an opportunity to share the gospel because people would say, Why are you working this job this way? Why do that? Why do this for the Lord Jesus? I want him to be honored with everything that I'm doing. I'm doing this for his honor, for his glory. It's a great example, great testimony. Throughout the book of Proverbs, hard work has been has been exalted. But here, it's not only just somebody that works hard, it's somebody that works hard and is skillful. So what will happen? you will stand before kings. There's this success. There's this idea of you don't have to bribe. You don't have to steal. You don't have to do all this other stuff that all these other jokers are doing. You just work hard at the opportunities that you're given, and guess what? The Lord will take care of you. That may even include promotions. That, that, that may include more stuff. So all the other stuff that we've seen so far in the first four statements, of all the stuff that people are doing, right, of robbing the poor and of making friends with people who are angry because we're trying to get more people on our team or or even even making these frivolous loans and, and taking these, these frivolous loans or, or, or moving the boundary of someone's land. Those are all ways that people will employ in their life to get ahead, to get an advantage of somebody. And and Solomon is saying, and Wisdom would say, no, that's not what we do. We work hard. We're obedient. We work skillfully as unto the Lord. And he will bring success. And guess what? This is not a, a, a recipe for failure. You might think this is a recipe for failure. You might look at somebody who is cheating the system and getting extra money and you go well i could cheat the system too and get extra money but notice notice solomon he says and he will not stand before obscure men meaning it only goes up from there it doesn't go down right it doesn't go down you're not you're not going to stand before nobody you're not going to be you're not going to be demoted all things being equal so this is like first day of middle school right Lots of lessons, lots of stuff. Lots of stuff to keep it straight. It's all good, right? All good stuff. All stuff that's needed. I remember my first day of middle school. I do remember the fear and trepidation of leaving the classroom and then realizing I forgot my bus number. And I like, ah. I remember before there was only four buses. I'll just look for my bus driver that picked me up this morning walk outside realized oh this is also the buses for the high school and also another elementary school there's not four buses anymore there's now 45 buses good luck Caleb trying to find your bus sure hope you know your phone number so you can call your mom that fear that trepidation that all this stuff that's in my mind but i remember i remember one of my teachers saying, this stuff you're going to need in your life. This stuff you need to to start assimilating to your life now. And I think back to that advice, and I think to this text, and I think of the the image that Solomon is painting in this text of, of a classroom, of one that's growing in our faith, of one that will someday have to go and teach others wisdom. That's exactly what this is like. This is like that first day, all that stuff flying at you, and you need to learn it. You need to master it. You need need to apply it correctly to your life. You need to take this stuff seriously. You should go home and seriously think about each one of these statements by themselves. Spend a lot of time meditating, looking at other passages. Because the idea is, is that you need to understand this. You need to learn this. You need to do this so that you can then go out and teach others to do this. We as Christians are called... To help those younger in the faith, right? That's part of our job, is to help those who are younger. To help those who are new believers, or even younger in age. To give them sound advice, to give them good direction. What type of direction do we give them? This. This is the type of advice that we should be giving each other. And each of us should be looking on, how can I help train How can I help teach? How can I look to some of those who are younger in the faith, younger than I am? How how can I invest time in their life to teach them God's words and the principles in God's word? We, We should, in this church, be in a competition to minister to one another and to help one another and edify one another. We should be in competition with one another. Not in the sense of, I'm doing it more, therefore I get more. But in the sense of, we should be ready to edify, be quick to edify. And, and we should say, I'm going to be the first one to edify. I'm going to be the first one to edify in this situation. May the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's, let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the things that are found here. We thank you just for the raw practicality of your word, that something that was written thousands of years ago still is incredibly, incredibly applicable for us right now. And we ask, Father, that you would teach us how to number our days, that we can give you a heart of wisdom, and that we can lead a life that is honoring and glorifying to you. We thank you and love you for everything you've given us. We say this in your Son's name. Amen.